Well, good morning, church family. What a joy it is to worship together with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn in your scripture to John chapter 6. While you're turning, I'm going to allow our kids, children's church age, to be dismissed to children's church this morning. And I want to say what, uh, what a joy it is to serve Dixie Baptist. We love you, church family. Grateful for you. Grateful for last week, uh, as we missed last Sunday. And uh, Brad filled in to preach, grateful for him, uh, bringing God's word to you. And uh, Daniel got sick, and uh, folks jumped in, Josh and Bobby, to lead, and uh, others to join in and sing. Uh, what, a, what a blessing it is for folks to uh, step in and help lead, and for the church to just continue to move forward in God's word and serving Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is to serve you, church family. I'm grateful for that. Well, we begin our worship service at 1045 and end about noon. Now, let's just say today that I'm more long-winded, that's possible, than normal. And I'm preaching and 12 comes and 12 goes. 1230 comes and goes. Right now, some of you are getting nervous, right? One o'clock, one thirty gets here. Now I realize I, I'm not a dummy. I realize I'll be pre- preaching to far fewer people at one thirty than I will be at eleven thirty. I'm not even sure my family would stick around for that. But let's say that you hang around. What is going to alert you to the fact that I have gone much longer than normal? Well, maybe your watch. Maybe you look at your cell phone. Maybe your back starts hurting from sitting so long. But maybe that's not the primary body part that's going to be letting you know that I went too long. Those stomachs are going to start growling. We may have to talk to Shane and say, turn up the sound system. We can't be heard over those growling bellies. I don't know about you, but uh, I don't just get hungry daily. I do know about you. If you're like me, we get hungry multiple times a day, don't we? Well, for the next few Sundays, we're coming into John chapter 6, a chapter where Jesus is interacting with the crowd and Jewish leaders, and much of it centers around food. Some of the references are to physical food. Some of this to food as a spiritual metaphor for what we should really be hungering for. All this leading to Jesus' mammoth declaration in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Our shared physical hunger becomes a symbol for spiritual hunger. And let's just say this. Church, our spiritual hunger can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. So our theme today is believe in Jesus for eternal satisfaction for your spiritual hunger. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand for reverence to the reading of God's Word. This morning, we're going to look at John chapter 6, verses 22 to 29. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Diperius came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. 
When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let us pray. Lord, we can look around our world and see that people are hungry for more. They're hungry for meaning. They're hungry for purpose. They're hungry for joy. They're hungry for life. And Lord, they're consuming spiritual junk food, and it is not satisfying. So Lord, I pray in two ways. One, that those who are hearing this message and are lost will see that only Jesus can satisfy our spiritual hunger, and that they turn to you, forsake the doing, and believe in Jesus Christ. And I pray, secondly, for us in the church, Lord, that we would be so satisfied in Jesus, that he would be the great treasure and delight of our hearts, and that we, who have had our spiritual hunger met in Jesus, would continue to hunger for him even more. Lord, we ask you make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we preach two times on Jesus' miraculous feeding of the multitude that began this chapter. One of those sermons focused on how Jesus' abundant supply of food demonstrates his abundant supply of grace for us. And then the next time, we focus on how Jesus refused to be the kind of king the people wanted in order to be the dying and rising king that people needed. Last week, Brad came in and preached the next section about Jesus walking on the water. So as we re-engage with John chapter 6 this morning, let's remind ourselves where we are in the timeline. This is only the next day after Jesus has fed the multitude. So they wake up, the crowd, this, this morning of the text that we've read, and they're still on the other side of the lake. And they wake up and they do some reasoning. They've done some detective work. Only one boat left the night before. The disciples had gotten into it. Jesus had not. Yet Jesus is not here on their side of the lake. So they go and they look for him and track him down to Capernaum. And that is something of Jesus' home turf at this point. And in our text that we read this morning, all the crowd does is ask two questions. Now, as we continue in this and in, in later weeks, we're going to see that they do ask more questions. They make some statements. But right here this morning, they simply ask two questions. Here's the first question. When did you come here? Rabbi, when did you come here? Again, they know one boat was there night four, disciples got in, you didn't, and yet you're here on this side of the lake. As they get to this side of the lake, they seem to know something out of the ordinary has occurred, but I can get their question. Like, I understand it, 
They ask this question, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question. And why? Because Jesus is diagnosing some things in them. First thing he diagnoses is they have the wrong motivation. So he begins this way, truly, truly, I say to you. Now everything Jesus says is true. We know that. Jesus does not speak lies. He only speaks truth. truth. So when he begins, truly, truly, we should see this as all caps, bold, underlined. And what he has to say following that is telling this crowd, pay attention. Something significant is being said and you need to catch it. And here's what Jesus says to them. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now what does Jesus mean with this signs language? He is not denying that they had seen a miracle. They were there when he fed maybe 20,000 people, including women and children, with five loaves and two fish. So they have seen the miracle. Their failure was they stopped at the miracle. They stopped at the bread and fish and didn't connect the sign to what this miracle pointed to. They missed the sign that Jesus is unique. He's one of a kind, that he is God in the flesh, that we spent so much time in chapter 5 seeing him teaching about. So they come, and they would love for Jesus to replicate this, this miracle about feeding them this bread. But I want you to see in verse 15, they want to make him king. They still want him to be a certain kind of king. So they come for more Food, more bread, more fishes, maybe even more manna as we continue in this story. But they haven't seen that the most important food they could come for is not manna, not bread and fishes, but the food is a person. The food they should be seeking is Christ himself. So they're chasing Jesus because they want that physical bread but they haven't realized what they most need is his forgiveness the eternal life that he could give leon morris the commentator said they were moved not by full hearts but by full bellies so they should have seen this miracle pointing to him as the savior who could deliver them from sin but they still got political plans for him they still want to overthrow Rome and see him as the guy to do that so they saw the bread physical bread missed the spiritual bread well we've seen this type of thing before in John's gospel haven't we if we go back to John chapter 4 there's a lady that came to a well and she wants nothing more than physical water and Jesus offers a spring of water welling up to eternal life and hey she's all for it sign her up put her on the plan But she missed at first, she missed at first what he was offering. She thought he was offering only physical water, only H2O, and didn't connect that he's offering her eternal life, forgiveness for her life of sin. Here in John 6, we see the crowd stops at the bread. They fail to see Jesus as the true bread. But I don't want you to miss 
how hungry they are. This crowd is so hungry that they chase Jesus across the lake. Now they chase him for the wrong reason. And Jesus, Jesus critiques their wrong motivation for seeking him. But he does so not to be mean to them, but to give them truth and love. I think we can, I think we can look at this text and we can walk away very critical of the crowd that comes to Jesus. Now, do they deserve criticism? Yeah, absolutely. And Jesus rightly points out their flawed motivation, their flawed hunger, even their flawed methodology that we're going to see. But I think we can identify with their struggle. It's a crowd that's hungry. And they do see something in Jesus that would make, him, make them chase him to the other side of the lake. They're thrilled with the miracle and they want more than they currently have. Now, if you think about this crowd, they're, they're probably living normal lives. You and I are living normal lives. We generally follow a routine. I guess if your weeks are like mine, they don't generally change too much. Most days, most times, I know what I'm going to be doing. And let's just face it, there can be a discontent that might creep in with that. There might be a frustration, a desire for more. Life can feel mundane, less like a routine, more like a rut. But I want you to catch this. A routine life with Jesus is glorious. A routine life without Jesus is meaningless. I suspect the crowd that day was shocked out of kind of the rut of their lives when Jesus miraculously feeds the multitude with five loaves and two fishes. So I think they come and they want something different. They want something more than life is giving them. But they hunger for the wrong bread. They're hungering just for this physical food. And folks, we see this all over the place, I think, today as we look around at our culture. People yearn for more. There is longing. And you, you can see it. I don't, I'm not talking about just out there in Hollywood. I'm talking about in your day-to-day lives, people yearn for more. We desire something deep within our souls. But so often we're trying to fill that with worldly things, with things of this world. Hey, this, this is one, and please don't hear me. I'm not saying it's bad to look forward to vacation. We all should do that. We all should have some vacation. But maybe this is one reason there's such a, a looking forward to vacation. It's a break from the ordinary, a break from the rut. Maybe this is why there's such great debt in such a wealthy nation. Because we see something and we want it, we spend things, money on stuff we don't need to just break up the monotony of life. And I think our world thinks that this longing can be satisfied by breaking out of the routine, by buying this or that gadget, but eventually... They come back to real life, and the question is, then what? Then what? And the pattern starts over, and the planning for the next purchase or adventure or trip begins again. So I want to ask you this. Is there 
a fulfillment to our deepest longing that satisfies in every moment of our lives. So church, when I speak of deep longing, when I speak of deep hunger, I don't want you to think small. If we're relating this to the food analogy, I don't want you to think, I had a big dinner and I'm hungry for a midnight snack. I want you to think longing of the soul in terms of I haven't eaten in three days and I'm starving. Because there are people around us who are starving for life and joy and meaning and purpose. I think that's the type of longing that we're talking about that all people have. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, wrote about this longing. He described it with a German word. I don't know how to pronounce the word. I'm not even going to try it. You see it on the screen. If you're a German speaker, great. You can tell me how to say it later on. But I like how he defined it. Listen to his definition of this German word, the inconsolable longing in the heart for we know not what. This is the type of longing I think we see in our text and I think we see in our culture. The inconsolable longing on the, in the heart for we know not what. I can just tell you that hit me when I looked that up and saw it. I think that's where so many people are. There is a longing in the human heart that we may not understand, that we may try to fill in a million different ways. And any way those satisfies just in a minuscule way and just in a momentary way. Because they don't bring full satisfaction and they don't bring lasting satisfaction. The longing is for eternity. The longing is for eternal life. The longing is for reconciliation with this holy God. Lewis may have described it in the 1940s with those terms, but the author of Ecclesiastes described it much earlier than that. In Ecclesiastes 3.11b, we see what God did. God created a hunger in us. He has put eternity into man's heart. And if our hunger is for eternity, which it is, there is nothing temporary that can meet that longing. No vacation, no splurges, no amount of money in my bank account. And I think this is why Jesus says, do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. We see that in verse 27 and we see so much laboring for food that perishes i think we all get the food analogy because we all get hungry daily my wife amanda spends a big portion of most days making sure that six hungry people eat before she takes Mike at a school about 7, 10. She'll often have made him and Caleb and me lunch for the day. Then she'll feed herself and two other kids lunch. And then she plans out dinner. Two weeks ago she went out to dinner with friends. But she didn't leave us home to eat cereal. She made us a roast. So even on her night off, she's making food for five or so of us. And with as much time and money as Amanda spends making sure our appetites are satisfied, it never lasts very long. I 
took a screenshot yesterday of our credit card bill. Our last six purchases were about buying food. One from Walmart, one from ENB Discount Grocery, one from Winn-Dixie, and then three in a row from Sam's Club. And they're on the same day. What in the world is happening at Sam's Club? Were you trying to break it up so I didn't panic when I saw the... My detective work was better than that. Food goes fast. The man is a frugal shopper, but it takes a lot of money to feed six people. And yet it just doesn't last. It's gone quickly. Or as Jesus says it here, it doesn't endure. Boy, Jesus chose a relatable analogy for us, didn't he? We get the idea because much of our days are spent trying to satisfy the hunger that is within us for food. And when Jesus directs them to the food that endures to eternal life, he is talking about himself, and we get what that physical hunger is pointing to in that spiritual metaphor. Here's this crowd. They had the incredible blessing of a massive meal the day before. And yet that food... That food that was there the day before, a new appetite is coming. They're going to hunger again. They're fixating on bread and fish. And here is the bread of life standing before them, offering them eternal life. I read a psalm the other day that, that really captures this longing and how God alone satisfies it. In Psalm chapter 84, verse 2. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The psalmist recognized that the longing, the fainting of his heart is for the living God, and the living God satisfies that. So why doesn't the crowd react to Jesus the way the psalmist reacted to God? And here's their problem. They haven't understood who He is. Now if if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, or your app on your phone open, I want you to see in verse 14, they see Him as prophet. In verse 15, they plan to make Him king. And then when they get to verse 25, they address Him as Rabbi, they are wrestling with the identity of Jesus. They know he's a miracle worker, but he's more than that, and they haven't seen that. Here Jesus calls himself Son of Man. This is his favorite title for himself, and it fully identifies him as being equal with God, but it isn't as loaded with current expectations as the term Christ or Messiah is in that day. That day it carried political connotations as one who would overthrow Rome and Jesus wants to avoid that idea. But he will not allow us confusion about who he is. Hear how he describes himself in this text. In verse 27, he describes himself as the one 
whom God the Father has set his seal. And then in verse 29, he describes himself as the one he has sent. So the seal was a way in ancient days to authenticate something as truly from the sender. If you're selling me a vehicle, you may want, you may not love a personal check from me. You may say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not taking that. But if I bring you a certified check, you might take that. A certified check is one my bank has said, this is legitimate. Well, Jesus is certified from the Father. He is God in the flesh. So they should have seen that He's the one who can satisfy their hunger. In church, we should see that as well. There's so many pretenders out there. But Jesus Christ alone will satisfy us. So let us be unlike the crowd who failed to move its eyes from this momentary perishing bread to Jesus for salvation from their sin. We so often hunger for wrong things, don't we? I don't know about you, but sometimes at the end of a long day, We'll sit down, maybe watch a show, we've had our dinner. But if we're in our chair, if we're watching a little TV, maybe inevitably a snack sounds like a good idea. Now put yourself in that scenario. I doubt I'm the only one in the room who thinks that way. Now how many of you, when you're sitting there in your chair, had your dinner, that you're hungering for something, how many of you are craving Brussels sprouts? Zucchini? big sprig of broccoli if you're like me maybe it's something like chips maybe it's popcorn now I want you to take that physical notion of food how many times in our society we see people hungering for meaning for life for purpose and they're seeking to satisfy maybe a thousand different ways all of which leave them continuing to long and yearn and desire or how often do we distract ourselves from this type of longing? We may be filling our lives with the junk food of constant entertainment that is distracting us. I doubt there's ever been a more entertained generation in human history than us with streaming services on our devices, social media on our phones, a music catalog at our fingertips. Listen, in 1985... 1985, that's almost 40 years ago, right? Neil Postman wrote a book. Here was the title of the book. Amusing Ourselves to Death. If that dude could write that in the 80s about our cultural context, how much more true is it in Dave's cell phones and internet that we're amusing ourselves to death? And I think that constant entertainment is distracting us from a very real longing and desire that God has placed in our souls for Him. And what we're getting is empty calories for our souls. And what we really need is Jesus. So church, labor for the food that endures to eternal life. Alright, so the crowd hears Jesus say that. This mammoth statement in verse 27, verse 28. And then they say to Him, 
Their second question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? If there is a right hunger for the things of God, their method of achieving it is completely misguided. Let's see they let's say they see that there's a problem that needs to be fixed. Do you see what tool they think they should use to fix it? Their tool is their own doing. Church, that's the wrong tool. If you've even done a little bit of work on your house or your car, you know that not having the right tool sabotages you. The wrong tool prevents you from fixing the problem. For example, you, let's say you need the spark plugs changed in your car, and the only tool you have is a hammer. Church, your spark plugs aren't going to get changed. Your problem's not going to get solved. In fact, you may be making the problem worse. Imagine your house needs to be painted. You need to paint a wall in your house. The only tool you have is a crowbar. Your house isn't going to get painted with a crowbar. In fact, the crowbar probably makes it worse. So here's Jesus telling the people, labor for food that endures. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. And the crowd has heard that term labor, and here's what they say. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Here is the only tool they can imagine doing, and it's their doing. Two times in their question is that word do. That is too much doing, and it's not the right ones doing it. Here's the issue. Their sinful works are the problem, not the solution. They can't solve this problem through the tool of their own works. But how contagious is this idea that we can solve our own sin problem through our works? This poisonous idea keeps popping up in, in human history. We can fix it by our doing. Imagine even today of those people who do not think that there's a God. But just in case there is, they think that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds, and this God that they're not sure exists will eventually let them into His heaven. Church, that's the wrong tool. Their tool is their own merit. That's worse than using a hammer to change spark plugs. It's worse than using a crowbar to paint the house. Far from fixing the problem, we only make it work, uh, worse. So here's the first thing we can do to do the work God requires and it's to realize we can't do any work that would work our way to God. Yesterday I saw a meme, I don't know who had it, I don't know, saw it on Facebook, somebody had a meme up of an 18-wheeler kind of jackknifed on an old country road, small road, the 18-wheeler is basically sitting there sideways in the road, looks helpless and the caption stated, me trying to turn my life around. We can't do it. We don't have the ability. Our works can't do it. Jonathan Edwards says the only thing you can contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. 
So Jesus corrects their wrong tool. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they're saying, what, what must we do? What are the thousand works that we could do that God requires? Jesus reduces all those works down to one work, and that work is believe. This is the work of God, believe. If you want forgiveness, if you want that hunger satisfied, if you want meaning, it's not your works, it is believing. But it isn't just generic belief in some higher power. Believe in the one the Father has sent. Now, if you're paying attention through the Gospel of John as we're preaching it, you're picking up this theme. John continues to give us, Jesus is sent from God. He's the one to look to. Don't trust in your ability. Don't trust in your righteousness. Trust in Him whom God has sent. We live in a culture that says any object of faith is legitimate just as long as you have sincere belief. And I must warn you, with all that I have, not to buy into that wrong idea. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But it's not faith in anything. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For the forgiveness of our sins. So this points us to the all-sufficiency of Jesus. It is His merit or we have no merit. It's His work in place of our works. It's His righteousness put on our account. So church, what do you take away from this text? Every person you meet is spiritually hungry, whether they know it or not. That co-worker who uses lots of creative language, who you might be tempted to think would never come to Jesus, has a tremendous hunger inside. That most rebellious student in your school has a hunger for forgiveness and eternity. That family member who right now might be hostile to the gospel and hostile to you, the gospel messenger, is hungry. And the only way that hunger is satisfied is Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world is going to fulfill that longing that C.S. Lewis described. The inconsolable longing in the heart for we know not what. So we've seen the crowd's hunger. We've said everyone hungers. I want you to hear that type of longing expressed in a modern day type context. Maybe you know Jim Carrey is an actor, comedian. He gave a speech at the 2016 Golden Globe, so seven years ago. And I've, I've watched this often. I think I've referenced it before. Now, he's a comedian. The crowd is laughing. But I think they miss his message. I'm not going to show you the video. If I, if I showed it to you, you might... You might laugh the first time, but I also want you to, I want you to hear the longing. So I'm, I'm going to quote uh, his speech. I want you to think about him. This is a man who has tons of fame, tons of money, tons of influence, but I want you to hear the hunger. So I'm going to quote it for you. He says, I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. 
You know, when I'm going to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dreams. No, sir, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Let me pause. All that could be funny, right? But now I want you to dial into what he says next. He's just referenced three-time Golden Globe, if he could win that. Here's what he says. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. I say, ah, it's just a comedian. It's just being funny. Maybe so. But when I hear that, I hear longing. I hear hunger. That a third golden globe would never satisfy. So what will? For you, for Jim Carrey, for every one of the 8 billion people on planet Earth. And it is the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And church, I want to say to you, Jesus Christ, the bread of life is a feast. He is the feast that is so satisfying. Let's just close with similar type of food analogy. So prevalent in this text. I just want to confess to you, church, I love ice cream. I just love it. You could probably look at me and say, yeah, might love it a little too much. I know it's not good for me. Our kids like to say, is it an ice cream night, Dad? Every day and night should be ice cream night, shouldn't it, church? I, mean, let, yeah, well, I get some amens on that. That's right. But, hey, that's right. It's so delicious, but let's face it, it's not that nutritious. Tastes great. Dad, it's that great for us. I don't love spinach. I'll choke it down if I have to. Know it's good for me. Need the nutrition. Need to eat something good. I don't really like it. I think that's how sometimes our world hears Jesus. It might be good for me, but it doesn't sound very good. It doesn't taste very sweet. So don't you wish there was an ice cream that was so delicious, but it was also just so good for us? Here's the fact of our Savior Jesus. He is our greatest need. He alone can satisfy the wrath of God against us and reconcile sinners to this holy God. So He is our greatest need. But church, He is our greatest delight. He is the joy of our souls. And I hope as we go through John chapter 6 that you will see Jesus as the greatest treat in the universe for us. My bowl of ice cream eventually ends. But my joy in Jesus never will. Here's how the psalmist says it. And we would all do well to to memorize Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore.
Church, it doesn't say in your presence there's a little bit of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures for a while. You are in Christ. And your soul is satisfied. You have maximal joy. And you have pleasures forevermore. Do you see Christ is the food that endures? If you haven't before today, put all your faith and hope in Jesus. And if you have, rejoice in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this glorious text. Thank you for what we see in your scripture, that you are the food that endures. You are the food that satisfies. You are the food that is the treasure of our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be satisfied by anything in this world Though it offers, though it calls to us, buy this, take that, and you will find happiness. God, may we not be fooled. May we see the truth and beauty of Jesus and treasure him. God, help your church to love you more. Help those who are lost see that Jesus is the only answer to their sin problem and turn to him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.